Hello and welcome to a special instruction edition of the Golf.com podcast. I'm the instruction editor, Luke Cardinine. I'm delighted to be here today with Debbie Doniger, a Golf Top 100 teacher. How are you, Debbie? I'm good. How are you? Doing well, doing well. So we're really excited about this because we're going to start doing these instruction podcasts where we're sort of taking a broader look at game improvement. We're going to talk some about the swing. We're going to have special guests on, but we're also going to talk about tips for the viewers at home and a holistic approach to golf in the sense that we're not going to stay laser focused on the swing, even though we are going to talk about it. We're going to talk about all the kinds of things that go along with game improvement. And I'm really excited about all the things ahead. Me too. I think golf's an all-encompassing game. There's so much information out there to get our listeners better. So why not hit on all aspects of the game, extrapolate what's going to help and and get it going. Absolutely. But first up, why don't we talk about our backgrounds a little bit? And Debbie, I know you have an especially interesting one. So for all the audience members who may not know, why don't you paint a picture to them of how you got to where you are today? I started golf when I was seven years old, played other sports. And then when I was 12 years old, completely solely was golf. I wanted to play the tour. My first instructor, which many people don't know actually, was Shirley Spork. She's Mm. an LPGA founder. Um, And then I started working with Jim McLean in Westchester County when Jim was the head pro at Quaker Ridge Golf Club, which a lot of people don't know. So that started at 12 years old. He's been my only and main teacher throughout my whole life. And I played junior golf, product of the AJGA, which I love. Uh, College golf, I played at Chapel Hill, did some really cool things there. And professional golf, played the European tour, and then pretty much ended my playing career in 95, 96, and started teaching for Jim full-time, was on a fast track uh, with him. Went out to PGA West, worked under Carl Welty, whom has since passed away, but uh, is in the Hall of Fame, and was a fabulous person, and then came back to Doral and all systems. Now, where you see me now, I've reached out to many teachers within the industry whom I can call friends, who are part of that top 100 (laughs) list that we have that I really respect and admire and um, I'm just so blessed to have the career that I have. How about you? When you played junior golf? I was on a similar track to you, I think, Debbie. Um, yeah, so I, I fell in love with golf in England, uh, which is where I'm from originally. I played at this crappy local public golf course in the center of London. Um, my mom's American, though, so we moved. the family moved over here when I was um, just about to enter high school. So I went to high school down at the International Junior Golf Academy down in Hilton Head Island. Um, I was there, obviously, all through high school, played junior golf, a lot of AGAGA events all around the country, played in the British Boys in 2007, was it? 2006. I'm getting, I'm getting old. I'm, all the years are starting to blend together. Um, I, actually, I actually came across, I'm sure you have this too, Debbie, right? You come across uh, these lists of tournament fields you used to be in, and it's just littered with PGA Tour players, or LPGA Tour players in your case, and, and amazing golfers who you grew up playing golf with and you're like wow I, I, <laughs> I wasn't quite on that track but it was cool to intersect with them for a while um and then what was your track to where you are now with golf magazine yeah so after junior golf at the golf academy i went and played college golf at the university of south carolina Beaufort. um i was there for four years and it was during that time where i started really getting you know obviously golf has been a lifelong passion of mine but i've also um started realizing that there are all these other things i was interested in like writing and um, being on camera and uh, digital media, more generally speaking. So I started getting involved with my student newspaper and I was sports editor there for a while. And then um, I was doing some internships, first at Newsweek, or first at USA Today and then at Newsweek. And that brought me up to New York because I came up here for grad school up at uh, Columbia Journalism School, which I 
uh, graduated from in 2013. Um, from there, I worked at a Golf Digest for a couple of years, but we won't talk about those. <laughs> the, we won't talk about those dark years. No, I'm kidding. Uh, I'm so grateful for everything Golf Digest did for me. And um, I was there for a couple of years. Then I went over to USA Today, where I was a golf writer and editor there for about three years before coming over to Golf Magazine. And it's exciting times ahead. It's been a it's been a fun journey up until this point. Um, and, and I can't wait to see the road ahead. I know. Look, I'm looking at the new February issue. It's a completely different look than what I'm used to seeing with Golf Magazine. So it looks awesome. Yeah. You know, and, and to your point, Debbie, it's it's something that we've obviously poured a lot of time and energy into, and I'm so happy you like it. And one thing that I think that you notice and that a lot of uh, readers will, in this case, will notice is the redesign instruction section. It's in the back of the book and it's, and what we've really, what I've really tried to do with it is have it reflect a, what I like to call a holistic approach to game improvement. It's something we touched on at the top of the show where um, when we're going to, there's going to be just as many swing tips in there as, as always, but they're going to be complemented with lots of other things. And this is something, Debbie, from playing and teaching that you know that improvement at golf doesn't start and end on the driving range, right? It doesn't start and end with the swing. There's all kinds of stuff that help you play better golf, whether it's what you eat, how you're working out, how you're thinking, all different kinds of things that golfers need to be paying attention to. Right. And I think within this podcast, and and we are going to do it, we'll highlight all of those people that can help our listeners with regards to what you just said. And also to understand that there are so many instructors out there that maybe the listeners can't have access to. And we hope that we can bring that information and help to them. And I think that's one thing I'm so grateful for is when I'm out on tour, for example, I can talk to Pete Cowan and spend time with him and Sean Foley and Butch Harmon. But now we can get these people, you know, their voices and their ideas because there are teachers in this game that have really helped shape and mold uh, from an instructional perspective. And now there's so much more information about nutrition and fitness that you cannot ignore in order to be a complete player. And you can go from a very simplistic level, which may help certain golfers, and, and you can take it to the extreme, which may help our really, really dedicated golfers. So you mentioned that there, Debbie, we're going to have a great slate of golf top 100 teachers as guests on this podcast. Some of the names who have helped mold some of the best players on this planet. Mike Adams is a legendary instructor we have coming up. So really looking forward to that. And speaking of which, we have two big hitters from the top 100 this week. Well, what better way to kick this off with Pia Nielsen and Lynn Marriott. They're two friends of mine. They work with a bunch of my players. They're very much at the forefront of mental and sports performance. So the information is going to really help any golfer listening. I met Pia and Lynn when I played the European tour and they were traveling really with the Swedish team. And one thing the listeners may not know is even though this was years and years ago, as Americans, when we were over there, we were all friendly. We knew each other from junior golf and we would travel together. But the Swedish team, they traveled as a team. They did everything together. They worked out together. They were doing things at the time that no one else was doing, which is interesting because such a small country that has produced so many fabulous golfers. So it's not surprising to me that they are where they are now in, in 2019. And Luke, you spent time with them in Scottsdale this week. Let's have a listen. I played college golf, and after college, I went straight into the business of teaching golf. I became a PGA of America uh, professional, an LPGA teaching professional, and I was a technical teacher. And I loved, I loved it. I just gave swing lessons every day on the range, and that's what I did. And I was, I was successful, and I worked at private clubs and public courses, and you know, I, I had the dream job. Um, 
But just, you know, I, I like to often say this honestly, is that <clears throat> people got better swings and they got better technique, but they didn't necessarily play better. So <laughs> that, you know, with that, I really got interested. So why aren't they playing better? And I often joke like it wasn't my fault. They had better swings. Lynn got through the technical teaching realizing she wanted to expand her focus. And for me, and I was a player. I'm from Sweden. And I played in our national teams and I was a tour player and all of that. And uh, I was, you know, I was, I was doing okay. But everybody said, why aren't you winning? I was making cuts and doing okay. But, but then I went back to Sweden some and every time I went back they always asked me come and you know help our younger players you've been in America and playing on tour and first suite to do that so but I didn't think much of it because I just wanted to be better as a tour player mm -hmm. but so I never stopped playing it just happened to me because they kept asking oh, oh if you're home a little bit like just help out a little bit and I realized I actually loved helping the younger generation do things smarter and better than I did mm -hmm. in my generation and the things that was so striking was that how come I can hit it so good on the range and I'm working really good stuff, but then things happen on the course. So when I started helping the Swedes, I naturally just started observing more what happens when they play on the golf course, especially on the golf course in competition. And I would just make notes and tell the teachers at the clubs in Sweden, well, I see these things, they for some reason swing much faster on the backside than front side, or this player seems to you know start reading the putts much more after this happened i just started making correlation and things are happening on the golf course that no one is teaching them all right debbie so i wanted to stop it there and ask you about this because i think it's a really interesting point that pierre and lynn are bringing up here that there's so much golf and i've taken a million golf lessons over my life and 98 percent of them had been on the driving range but they're right in the sense that we're, we're taking lessons to play better on the course. And I think that disconnect that Pierre and Lynn are talking about here is really interesting. So I, I, I wanted to get your thoughts on this as an instructor yourself. How do you help players take that from the range, what you're teaching them, the technical stuff, and help them actually apply it on the golf course? I think they're absolutely right when they say, you know, they may teach golf more than other instructors because they are invariably on the golf course. And you're exactly right. It's a completely different world on the range versus going out onto golf holes with wind, slopes, trees, you have adrenaline, you have nerves, you have your buddies watching. So it's a completely different animal, two different worlds, two separate. I think the more that as teachers, we can get on the golf course with our players and help them, like P and Lynn are saying, I'll just go back to them, having, they call it emotional resilience, or they have so many different ideas of how to be your best player on the golf course. And so as teachers, I think it's our job to, if you're trying to score better, go for the low hanging fruit, understand yourself as a person and a player and figure out the shots where you can do better at on the golf course and therefore lower your scores. And it's almost like a, a different skill set, right? Like in some ways that you don't get points based on how good your swing is, but doing certain things in your swing helps you, can help you score better because it helps you hit the, hit, hit the ball better. So I can imagine as a teacher, it's kind of, it's kind of tricky balancing those things it out. is it's a catch-22 because you need the technical skills you need the skills to control your ball flight you need to understand slopes and what you have to do to change your setups in order to get the ball from point a to point b but if we can hone in on making your misses more accurate and your short game for most of the players that i teach is 
really good, then, you know, you can lower your scores. But more time on the golf course is invariably better because like they said, every day you wake up differently. Golf is a game of variability. And to try and be perfect and to use the word I need to be more quote unquote consistent really doesn't make sense with understanding the game of golf. Yeah, it's a great point, Debbie. And it's something Pia and Lynn talk about more in this next section. They also share their thoughts about what makes a good golf instructor versus a bad golf instructor and what students should know going into a golf lesson. Yeah, I know you often said that you had really good technical instruction when you were a player, yeah, but that but perfect. your teachers never saw you play golf on the golf course. No. <laughs> or, or in competition. We always say, what other sport would the coach not watch what happens in competition? So, you know, we just think it's a little blind spot we have. And actually, we actually going back to things used to do used to only be on the course you know and then, way back when yeah. in scotland and yeah. you know when the game began so we think yeah. now it's great that we have advanced so much with technology and measurements and all of that we're all for it but we can't forget that the game is still about playing golf in the course and getting a ball in a hole and learn that every day forever is going to be variable and different there's never going to be the same ever so what tools do you have to manage that so of course we've had to for many years I mean, some has even said, oh, yeah, but they don't do, they don't teach golf. It's like, I think we teach golf more than most, <laughs> most teachers because we're out in the golf course and yeah, integrating right. the technique with everything else you need. I, well, I think <clears throat> that, you know, actually as a, as a consumer out there, you want to interview and find out, you know, you know, what are you going to take me on the golf course and and how are we going to do this thing on the golf course and if uh, you know your instructor says well no i'm not, you know we're not going to take you on the golf course till you get your swing i would be a little beware be a little skeptical, yeah, a little skeptical and because i mean ultimately i think people are working on their techniques so that they play better golf on the golf course yeah. i mean i think that's so you want to make sure that there's some sort of um, you know, lessons set up or package set up, a plan set up, that it's about you playing better golf on the yeah. golf course and your coach is going to go out there with you. Yeah, and, and another yeah. thing I think is very, very important for the consumer that they need to tell the teacher, you know, honestly, like I play twice a week and yeah. I usually have, because I have family and have job, I have about 10 minutes to warm up. and keep that in mind what makes sense for me to work on knowing i'm not going to spend five hours a day working on something yeah. they they might want it but it's unrealistic so i think and and needs to be a teacher to can less listen in and be adaptable to how this person actually plays golf and how much time is available and you know how long they have played knowing how much have they myelinated their moves and what would it take to even change it so i think often we think the consumer golfer needs to speak up more and if the, the teacher doesn't right away ask those questions so you can do something that's appropriate for how they play golf and how much they practice. So Debbie, I think that idea of a student being informed with the right knowledge before going into taking a bunch of golf lessons is really important. And it's something that not a lot of golfers think about. The idea that when they're going for golf lessons, what are they looking for themselves from an instructor? Uh, what parts of their game are they trying to improve and what kind of plan are they trying to develop? So, I mean, as an instructor, how important is that for the student to be armed with the right knowledge when they're going into taking lessons? I often say to people that don't know how to find a golf instructor, it's like looking for a doctor. It's like looking for a tutor for your child. You have to do your due diligence. You have to know the resume and the background of the teacher that's going to hopefully help you with your golf game. And hopefully that instructor has a very good resume 
has years and years of experience. I think that's a huge part of it and uh, can teach all facets of the golf game. If they can't teach all facets of the golf game to your specifications, then they need to have a team behind them that can sort of send you to the right person and it becomes a collaborative effort. But I definitely think you have to really look at the background of the teacher, the success of the students of that teacher. Uh, it's word of mouth, like you and I just said, off air, compatibility is a big deal. Are they in line with your goals as a student? And can they get the job done? Absolutely, and you know, there's a. I think a lot of golfers struggle to understand what makes for a good teacher, right? So golf.com and Golf Magazine, we put out our list of the top 100 instructors in the country every two years. Um, but I think a lot of golfers still struggle to pick the right instructor for them. Because like you said, there's a lot that goes into it, right? There's, um, you, you need to figure out what you want from your golf swing. You need to figure out what the teacher's methods are, what his goals for you are. And that's just something that, um, there's a lot of great instructors for that, but you need to figure out what the best instructor is for your game, right? I think as a student, you have to be very discerning on who you choose. And that list is, is a great list to start. And usually you can call up any PGA, LPGA person in your area, even at your local golf course if you don't belong anywhere, and they should be able via less than six degrees of separation say, hey, this person is great. This person has had much success and can help you on the, lead you down the right path. I've seen a lot of instructors um, who are method teachers, so to speak, and that person may be right for you, but may not be right for you. So there's a lot of free information out there that can take you down the right road, but also the wrong road. So you really do, as I said in the beginning, be very discerning because it's very easy to not get better at this game versus to get better. But if you have the right person and if you choose the right person, you'll enjoy the game of golf so much more. Let's go back to Pierre and Lynn who have a concept that they say helps golfers when they get their head way too clogged with swing thoughts. Let's give it a listen. For many, because they've, they've thought that they're only gonna get better at golf through having swing thoughts and more technique thinking. Yeah. And we believe that they do need to work on their technique, but never when they're actually swinging the golf club. On yeah, the course. Yeah, yeah. On the course. So meaning like, well, we, we, we give it a name, we call it the play box, but that's when you step in and you're actually engaged in hitting a shot at the target on the golf course. That, that is the absolute worst place to be now thinking about your golf swing and be working on your golf swing. And, yeah, and you brought so it. We compartmentalize it. So we have this thing called think box and play box. But it's just to help people, there's a place and a time to work on your golf swing. But it's not when you're playing golf. The performance science is very conclusive on this. So, I mean, if you just look at the science of it, when an athlete, and we're going to call golfers athletes because they are, but a, a golfer is in um, a performance position, then they do not want to be cognitively thinking. So the, the research on this in terms of looking at brain activity and you know, where is the brain active and how is the brain active, it's conclusive that we, we don't want to be in this cognitive beta brainwave state. It's, you yeah, know, so it, we need to yeah. have a place we do that, but now we want to be able to step in and be an athlete and be what we call more sensory. And then that's validated again by the brain research is that that's more of an alpha theta brainwave state. Mm. So, yeah. so it's kind of, we're just modernizing common sense and what's <laughs> been known for centuries that any great musician, athlete, surgeon, you name it, in the moment of performance, 
they're, they're in it and they're sensing it. They might see the target or they might just feel the movement that they're making, you know, a soccer player, basketball player, in reactionary sport, you don't have to worry about it. They're just in the sport, seeing the target or feeling the throw. But in golf, because the ball is sitting still waiting for us, and many of us have been giving all this cognitive thinking instruction, golfers don't know yet how to, okay, I'm done thinking, and now I'm stepping in, and I know just feeling my grip pressure to the finish is best for me. And when another player learns like, okay, I make my decision, and then sensing 70% tempo is best for me, but you have something to focus on that makes you more athletic. All right, Debbie, so this concept of a think box and a play box, the idea that you're standing behind the ball, that's when you're allowed to do your thinking, and then you step into this shot. You're a great instructor, obviously, a top 100. You're a great player yourself. This is something that you've experienced, both teaching students and yourself. Uh, maybe you could paint a picture of what this is like, like what, what a think box and a play box looks like for the average golfer. P and Lynn actually work with a bunch of my players, and I know them personally. Um, I did ask P and Lynn once, because I think as a player, you can get so bogged down in the think box, play box, as they deem it to be. Uh, that you get too actually technical and mechanical, which is the opposite of what this think box play box theory is trying to help you not be. So, and they agreed with me that sometimes the pre-shot routine can get so mechanical that it just destroys it. So there has to be some sort of flow. So one thing that Pian Lin did with a bunch of my students, which was really helpful, is in the think box, which is definitely behind the golf ball, uh, we timed it. Is three seconds good for you? Six seconds? Nine seconds? Which is the best place for you to be where you're breathing, you're relaxing, you're picking out your target. As they said, there's a swing feel. Is it a commitment to the target? Is it uh, a grip pressure feel? And once you cross an imaginary line, but it's a pretty discerning line, you are now in the play box and all systems are go. And again, you know, timing literally with a stopwatch my players who who do this is really kind of valid and important wow and sometimes you just have to hard stop after three seconds you're allowed to think for three sometimes seconds but then it's with certain players that's a perfect amount of time for them and and so just to be clear so what this pre-shot uh, pre-shot routine like this would look like is that a golfer pulls their club they're standing behind the ball looking at the ball and the target and they get either three six or nine seconds just to go through what kind of stuff the swing thoughts uh, and, and and anything else well it's exactly what you see if you watch golf on tv it's what the guys are doing and women behind the golf ball there are some players that take their practice swings next to the golf ball although you don't see it very often but it's exactly what they've just defined it and made it a very simple way to understand for the layman golfer to understand what a quote unquote pre-shot routine is. And it's exactly what you said. It's making all your decisions behind the golf ball. It's gathering those swing feels. And then once you cross that line, it's like we said, all systems go. You got to kind of give it up. And sometimes letting go of control helps you gain control, which is why golf is so hard. Absolutely, so you're making a few practice swings, you've chosen your club, this is great, but then you cross that line, you're standing over the ball, what's going, what, what should be going through a golfer's head right, right during that moment? Again, I think it's very student dependent. I did play for a living and I had one, maybe two swing feels, swing thoughts. I think that's okay, it's very student dependent, but it's looking at your target, 
looking at the ball if that works for you, and then pulling the trigger. Because the brain, the next frontier, I think, for most of us golf instructors to understand, and PN Lynn delved into it a little bit, you know, you're, it's already, the connections are already there. So uh, the golf swing is so fast, you really don't have a lot of time to think. So the think box and the play box is a great method for playing well. But I also asked Pia and Lynn about the dark side of golf, the downward spiral, what happens when everything goes wrong. Let's give it a listen. We often say the first signal is that you've got a little hesitation. Might be hesitation of your aim or your club or even, you know, something with your swing. You just don't feel comfortable. And then you go ahead and hit it and you don't get a good result. And then people tend to start the whole fix it piece. Mm. So then, you know, that may be hesitation for a few more shots, but it spirals down to now it's confusion. And they're not just getting like a hesitation signal. They're literally in search and scan, like which swing thing's going to work. Uh, so they hit one bag shot and they're like, well, something's wrong. Now I must fix it when really. Yeah, but you know, that whole, yeah. you know, one sh- we often say one shot is not a trend. You need more data points <laughs> <laughs> to actually see that you've got, you know, a swing thing you need to fix. So, but yeah. yeah. So we see that thing just spiral down. So what we, we help golfers a lot with, first they need to know, what are the things they do when they play really well? Most golfers don't know. They'll say, well, I make putts and my drives are in the fairway. Like, duh. You, you need to know more what you do when you play well. It could be like, well, I see the ball flies really clearly. Or my tempo is staying like a little below 100% to the finish. Or, you know, you need to know what are the things that happens when you play. We just call it the my 54-hour language. But you need to, every golfer needs to know what are the things I do when I play well. And sometimes it's enough for a month. After the round, just sit down. The holes are played well. These are things that happen. I talked to my playing partner, so I did not talk to my playing partners. Or, you know, so you get an inventory. And then you need to know when I lose it, the downward spiral, when I something happens. Yeah. You also need to be curious about how you do that because every player is unique. But some we always are very consistent with how we mess up. So like me, my entire life, if I start losing it, Two things always happen. My tempo gets too quick, and I start worrying about the future. Mm. Lynn is totally different. She, she gets too. My tight grip pressure grip gets pressure. too tight, and then it has its technical equivalent yeah. of the face gets yeah. shut. Interesting. So, so, yeah. so, so we want to help the golfers yeah. knowing what they do when they play well, and then they need to know one or a few main things that happens every time they get stressed, lose it, and then it's about catching yourself early to know what to do to shift back. All right, so Deb, the downward spiral. You're a great player yourself and you're an instructor, so you probably have students calling you panicked all the time. Can you relate to what Pia and Lynn are saying here about the downward spiral? A hundred percent. As a former player, because I did play for a living, played in college too, I personally always like to plan B. So my teacher my whole life, Jim McLean, we had to come up with a swing that was a plan B so that I did not fall into the trap that lead that Pia and Lynn talk about, which is searching and trying to fix it on the golf course, not just understanding, hey, you're going to hit a bad shot. No big deal. Just get up and down. But you can start to make bogey, 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 and then you've got to stop the train and you better have something in your arsenal that can bring you back so that you can end up shooting, you know, a very low score and stay in the tournament. My students, relatively speaking, whether they're 90 shooters, 80 shooters, or my college level students, It's a lot about what Pia and Lynn talk about. It's being able to control yourself as a human being, a fully functional human being on the golf course, no matter what's coming at you, having the tools, having the data points. I thought what they said about 
writing things down when you're in that good state, when you're not in a good state, and really figuring out for you what happens when the adrenaline is off the charts. One thing that they do on the range that I think is really cool with some of my players is you practice at a high level of adrenaline. Maybe you jog in place, maybe you do some jumping jacks. At what level of adrenaline do you perform the best? Maybe you are in that place and your friend says, okay, now hit a low draw, 50 yards with five iron. Some crazy shot that you may need, but under massive stress with that adrenaline, and you figure out what level of pressure and adrenaline you can perform the best. And those are things you can do on the range that can transfer over or hopefully transfer over to the golf course. It's a great point too, right? Because it's all about identifying how you act in a neutral state, in a positive state, and in a negative state. Like I remember, I was such a range rat growing up. I was just on the driving range all the time. Um, but I remember I was playing terribly in this one tournament. I was junior golf at the time. And somebody had videoed my swing and it almost looked totally different. It looked, I was playing terribly that day and I was nervous because of it. So I was in this downward spiral. And my swing was just like a foot shorter. And I realized, wow, when I get nervous, not only do, do I tighten up naturally, but I just start trying to guide it. I, I stop trying to hit it and I just start trying to push it down the fairway. My swing gets really short and I'm practicing a move that I haven't been practicing all this time. So now I know that when I get nervous or I'm playing bad, um, it's it's I need to focus on really stretching and making that full turn. Um, and I'm just, and I just think it speaks to this point right and it's what you just said too how do everybody's different what do I do when I'm nervous or when I'm playing bad like understanding every golfer understanding their own traits is so important to solving that problem it's the first step right for sure and then not the emotional resilience which they talk about too so not judging yourself not berating yourself you almost have to be your own best friend out there uh, in order for you to get through the bad spots which are going to happen that's golf also i think if there's some sort of acceptance of it and there's gratitude in there that you can ride through those spirals that are invariably going to happen because like we said that is the game of golf they're going to happen any what, 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 what were some of your tendencies when you weren't when things weren't going your way on those rare occasions when you weren't playing well what 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 would you revert to i think what i had to do was that three-quarter punch shot with my irons Interesting. Yep. So if I just started to miss some greens, I wasn't a very long hitter. So I was had a great short game always, never really missed a fairway. But if I started to miss some greens, yes, I could get up and down, no problem. But I really had no to, problem getting <laughs> yeah, up and down. No, I really had to go to a three quarter punch shot. And then once I started hitting the ball solidly again, it's weird, you know, things happen on the golf course. You start to get a little more confident and you feel momentum going for you rather than against you and, and you can kind of get back on track. See, and that's uh, that's something that golfers listening now can take away, right? They can say, oh, you know, when I get nervous, when I'm not hitting greens a lot of the day, maybe I should try hitting a few punch shots. Maybe that won't work for them, but maybe it will. And then they know that the next time they're, they're just having an off day or they're especially nervous, they can have a they can develop a go-to shot that's that they've thought through and that they can feel more comfortable with. And also to your point, what you were talking about with your backswing, a lot of players that I teach have the same problem. They shorten their backswing. So a nice feel is complete your backswing because you gain time by completing your backswing. So when you're under pressure and you feel like you're losing control of your swing, so to speak, you gain time by increasing the length of your backswing. So a nice swing thought is complete your backswing or feel 
that you complete your backswing. So it goes part and parcel of what you just mentioned with your own game. Awesome. Well, thanks, Debbie. And thanks to Pierre Nilsson and Lynn Marriott. Together, they are the co-founders of Vision 54. Go check them out on social media at Vision 54. They run golf schools all around the country, preaching the mental side of golf. So go check it out. All right, Debbie, so next up is a segment I'm incredibly excited about. We asked our golf.com and golf magazine Instagram audience, if you could ask a top 100 teacher anything, what would you ask them? So a lot of questions and comments came in. So I'm just going to rapid fire pepper them at you. You can give them your take and you can help our golf.com audience get a little better. You ready? Ready. Let's do it. All right. First up, share a training plan for three times a week practice at the range. I would delineate the time that you have to practice three days a week. If it's a half hour, you could break it down into 10 minutes, 10 minutes, 10 minute increments. I would do, you know, whatever your game needs, wherever the low hanging fruit is. If it's short game, I would do 10 minutes of long putting, 10 minutes of five feet in, and then maybe 10 minutes of pitching and be done. Great advice. Okay. What is the most important part of the golf swing to master? A good grip for you. Can Tiger Woods win another major? Oh, gosh, it's Tiger. How can you say I can't bet against that man? I know. How important is club fitting versus lessons? Beyond important. I think that's something a lot of people also forget, right? That those two things aren't opposed. They work hand in hand in many ways. You have to take all the guesswork out. If you're properly fit, you've taken that equation out. Interlock or overlap grip and why? Again, totally student dependent. Go see a proper teacher that can give you the right grip for you. And then another one here. Why do I suck? <laughs> Golf is is a game of variability. You don't suck. It's just tough. How do I stop lifting out of my stance on the downswing? I would say make sure you get a physical evaluation and understand that it might be fitness related or physical versus your golf swing. Just take that equation out as well. Juan here says, why do I shank the ball when I'm not aligned with the mat on the range? Why do I shank the ball? In other words... When the mat's misaligned and you try to aim at a flag where it's not aligned, he shanks the ball apparently. Is this a common problem that you see? It's so interesting. I had a student the other day, he's a little OCD and the mat was not aligned properly and we literally had to move the mat, which is fine. Uh, If you can't move the mat, you're just going to have to block it out, <laughs> put some alignment <laughs> rods down if that helps you, and hit the center of the club. What's your favorite on-course snack? Almonds. How did you get to where you are today? A lot of hard work. What are some tips to practice for a consistent takeaway? Well, go to a right teacher because there's a specific takeaway that's that's correct for you. And then... It's going to take some, you could do some mirror work. You should get a good drill that works for you. If those things don't resonate with you, you have to get the right feel. You could do some stuff in the gym that relates to you. So it's just understanding where your takeaway needs to be in terms of the club face, your arms, your hands, and therefore your body. How do I fix my chicken wing, Debbie? Well, that's the effect of something. So you got to figure out the cause. It's usually an open club face. So I would go to the club face first and then work on the release. 
why this is, a, this is a good question here that I hadn't thought about. Why do people say choking up and choking down when they're actually the same thing? <laughs> I don't know. Right? It's one of those weird things that I never really thought about. I don't know. What made you do what you want to do? Well, I, I started golf when I was playing seven. I wanted to play the tour when I was 12. So I've been in golf my entire life. Uh, most of my best friends are within this industry. And it's just invariable that this is what I was meant to do. Now, a few more here. We'll wrap up. Uh, would you rather teach or play on tour? I'm still a little bitter that I didn't make the LPGA, <laughs> but made the European tour and had the best time. And there's no way my life would be where it is had I not stopped playing when I played. So got to get over it and move on and love what I do. And I am so blessed to do what I do. So this is a really great question here. How important is it to have a neutral grip? And is it bad to have a strong or a weak grip? So again, it goes back to what's the right grip for you. You can't say that because there are many grips on tour that are strong, weak, neutral. They work for that player, the right arm structure. Uh, you should go to a teacher that can assess the right grip for you. N n none are bad. And then finally, when you look at a swing, what is your first thought? What is the one thing that you're looking for when you look at a swing? An amateur or professional? An amateur. I think just good balance, good tempo, good rhythm, the intangibles that that would help you play well under pressure. Are you athletic? Is your body mobile, flexible? Do you have the strength? Because uh, golf is a repetitive swing on one side. So is your body able to handle and withstand the golf swing? And actually, you know, I said that was the last one. We're going to jump in with one more because I think this is a good one. What's the number one thing you would recommend to a beginning golfer? I'd say go find what what you and I talk about. Go find a really good instructor to help you navigate this game because it's a wonderful game to play. And uh, with a good instructor, you'll enjoy it more. Well, Debbie, that's a great answer. But unfortunately, it's incorrect because the correct answer is that you should subscribe to Golf Magazine and, of course, go sign on to golf.com. Thanks so much for doing these rapid-fire Twitter questions. And we love hearing from our audience members. So please reach out to us at golf underscore com. And it's the same handle on Instagram, too. Next up, we have our colleague Dylan DeChair, who wrote a feature for our February redesign issue of Golf Magazine. It's all about Dustin Johnson's long game. He's going to pull a tip from it and describe it for us. So let's give it a listen. It's great stuff. Stop swinging driver as hard as you possibly can. That's Dustin Johnson's message to recreational golfers. I swing it fast, he says, but how often do you see me finish off balance? Dustin's swing speed comes from a lot of work, from being in the gym, from stretching, from technique, and from talent too. Most of his drives, he's going about 85 or 90% if he's really going at it. But he says, if I ever swung 100%, I'd have no chance at connecting. The same is true for you at home. The way most recreational players are going to add distance is by making solid contact. Catching the ball in the center of the club face is the main key to maxing out your yardage. So stay consistent, resist the urge to swing out of your shoes, and remember, the best way to add yardage is by hitting the middle of that club face. 
that's going to do it for the first instruction episode of the golf.com podcast. Thanks to Pia Nielsen and Lynn Marriott, Dylan DeChair, our producers, Lucas O'Neill and Rory Fergazi. I'm Debbie Doniger. And I'm Luke Kedanine. Remember, we're going to be bringing you this podcast a lot more frequently, so stay tuned. And if you don't already, subscribe to the golf.com podcast on iTunes or SoundCloud. And from all of us here at golf.com, we'll catch you next time.